Uh, as always, Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16 is our anchor verse for this series. Around here at the well, if you're a guest with us, every series has this uh, a verse that we just kind of anchor everything in. It's the, it's the bookends to, uh, to this series, and it's Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16. says this, thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Come on, how many of you know that's a good portion of scripture right there, rest for your souls. Now, Matthew chapter six, verses 16 through to 18 is gonna be the piece of scripture that's gonna um, hold our tension today, if you will. And it says this, in Matthew chapter six, verse 16, it says, whenever you fast, every shout fast. fast. Every shout fast. fast. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. So everyone knows, he's telling it to us real. Don't be, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. You ever met that person before that makes sure everyone knows they're a spiritual person? That's the equivalent, you know what I mean? Like, that, like Jesus is trying to say, listen, you don't need to flaunt it. You don't need to work hard at making sure people know that you are spiritual. For truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, we shall win. Okay, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others. In other words, he's saying, make yourself look good. We don't want everybody knowing that you are spiritual. Make sure that you can walk out and nobody's like, okay, what's going on with this, this person? So it isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will Rewards you. Today, as we continue on in our series, Saving Sacred, I want to speak to you from the subject, body turning. Body turning, as we look at the sacred practice of fasting. We pray with me just one more time today. Jesus, we love you. We honor you. We worship you. We thank you for this moment that we have today to gather together, to experience your presence in our lives. And God, I pray that right now, by the reading of your word, that your truth would set us free today. And we thank you that it's alive, it's active, it's powerful, and it produces in our life transformation like nothing else can. And so we honor you with this time. Speak to us now. Our ears are open, our hearts are ready to receive from you. In Jesus' mighty name, come on and everybody shouted. Amen. Amen. Many of you have never heard of a man named David Cameron Duncombe. He passed away June 11th, 2011, having led an amazing life helping others through social justice causes, education, and medical care. Duncombe was a man who had a burden and a passion for people. And not just to see people encouraged, but to see them lifted up, cared for, and helped out of situations that he believed were able to be changed. And one such issue that he was impassioned by was world hunger and starvation. In 1999, Duncombe would engage in what would be a 49-day fast within the halls of Congress in order to see H.R. 1905 passed. It was a bill that would have the burden of debt lifted from the poor and especially countries in which their debt payment could be used in order to create better living conditions for their people. Now, just as a qualifier, I, re I read you this story not as any type of political conversation. I want you to see the actions of a man. Okay? Duncombe's story has been told over and over again in the halls of Congress and beyond. His fasting would cause, at this time, a 71-year-old body to lose 35 pounds. 
His body temperature would drop between 94 and 96 degrees, and his blood pressure would go to 85 over 60, to which he would only sleep three to four hours a night. Believing that, and I quote, until the burden of debt is lifted from the poor, I am morally constrained to stand with them in their hunger. On what was called the Wednesday night miracle, both sides of Congress would come together, both sides, which seems like crazy right now. They would both come together to pass H.R. 19, or uh, 1095, as a $435 million package that would help countries feed their poor. Duncombe would walk away from that moment saying this, because the one goal of this ministry was to help save thousands of lives each day from starvation, to risk death by starvation myself was a morally acceptable means to this end. When asked why he was doing what he was doing, David Duncombe would give this powerful statement. Listen to what he says. Words are cheap and words are plentiful in Washington, but prayer and fasting are not. Incredible. David Duncombe would join the generations of those saints who had gone before him to participate in more than just fasting. He would now be included in a hallowed fraternity of those who have practiced something more, something deeper, something transcendent, as one author, Scott McKnight, calls body turning. And for many of us right now in this moment, when I say today, welcome to church on this snowy day, we're gonna talk about fasting, we're like, yay! I was hoping for an encouraging word. I was hoping for something that was gonna set my Monday off right. And I just wanna encourage you over the next little while, lean in with me, because we're gonna discover today that this ancient path, this sacred space of fasting is so much more than what we realize. And maybe, just maybe, we'll walk out of here today understanding that when I engage in the sacred, when I seek to save the sacred, when I engage in fasting, I'm doing more than just remaining away from food, but I am potentially engaging in changing the world. Now, as a qualifier, I have been hyped to preach this message over the past few weeks. <laughs> so in his book, Fasting, Scott McKnight, McKnight we're gonna hear a lot of, uh, of information from today, would give what I believe to be a very important and pointed working definition for fasting. If you don't know what it is, it's more than just not eating food. Fasting is the choice, as he would say, not to eat or drink for a specified period. Fasting is not the same as abstinence. Like, I'm not gonna eat Oreos, but everything else I will. Have you ever done the non-Oreo fast or the no-sweets fast? Like, it's not even really a fast. Like, think about this. You just replace it with an abundance of something else. <laughs> Let's be honest, okay? I, like, I'm, I'm fasting from Oreos, but I'm gorging on Sour Patch Kids. That's my problem which is the choice not to eat or drink specific items even though one is still eating and drinking other items. That's abstinence. Neither is fasting the same as dieting, which is the choice not to eat or drink various items for health reasons. Fasting, as we see it in the biblical tradition, emerges from an organic and unified sense of the whole person, body, and spirit or soul acting in concert. For the united or for the unified person, fasting is both natural and inevitable when the person encounters sacred moments in life. In other words, the sacred and ancient path of fasting is so much more than not eating food. It is the fully encompassing practice of denying one's self. 
In her study of the biblical view of fasting, Lynn Babb would say this, fasting is the natural, inevitable response of a person to a sacred moment in life. And as we just read, Jesus would tell us that fasting is not an if issue, it's a when issue. It's a win issue. And concerning fasting, the prophet Isaiah would write this in Isaiah 58, six through eight. Isn't this the fast that I chose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke. It is not to share your bread with the hungry or to, br- uh, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood. Then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. In other words, fasting engages this deep spiritual context for our life. And it is, as he would say, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke, to share bread with the poor, and to bring them into our house. The great American philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard would help us with this whole body reality by reminding us that the new life in Christ simply is not an inner life for belief and imagination. Even if spirituality Uh, spiritually inspired. It is a life of the whole embodied person in the social context. This is why Jesus would say, make sure that you don't change your face and your looks when you're engaging in a spiritual reality. You have to be unified in it within the social context. And to bring it all together, Amy Johnson Frycomb concludes, fasting is about three things, attentiveness, compassion, and freedom. Now, how many of you in just that four-minute discourse have just found out that fasting is a lot more than we thought it was? The problem that so many of us face when it comes to fasting is is we see it as one-dimensional, self-denying practice that that doesn't have much consequence in our lives anymore. Or we see it, as Scott McKnight would say, a manipulative device instead of a genuine Christian spiritual discipline. We do this when we relegate fasting to the corner of our faith journey and label it as legalistic, irrelevant, or unnecessary. We talked about this in the giving message. I fast, then I get. I fast, and then I get. We're not gonna repeat it. (laughs) But how many of you agree with me? You don't need to show hands, but many of our spiritual disciplines seem to be a transactional reality with God. Right? Right? I do this so I can get this from God. If I worship, then I can get this from God. If I give, then I'm gonna get back. If I fast, then he's gonna, he's gonna come through on something as if our spiritual disciplines put his arm behind him and maneuver him and manipulate him to do what we want him to do, failing to realize that he is the sovereign God. He is the creator of the universe. He does what he wants to do. Ronald Rollheiser said it like this, today a number of historical circumstances are blindly follow, flowing together, accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not to just think about God or to pray, but simply to have an interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, <clears throat> and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, except during 2020, and the fantasy life that they produce within us than we are in church. Pathological busyness. 
Distraction and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. No wonder, after reading that, are we amiss on seeing any a part of our lives as sacred. We're going too fast, and at the same time, we've become too shallow. And here's what I've come to realize. Too fast and too shallow creates a really dangerous cocktail. Too fast and too shallow. And we hit a a wall at 1,000 miles per hour, and we burst open. When we engage in the sacred path of fasting, something else is going on. See, the sacred practice of fasting is a clarion call back to an ancient path that brings us face-to-face with God and face-to-face with ourselves. So what is a, a sacred moment? This is where we're gonna get a little bit creative and I'm gonna try to illustrate this for us today. What is, a, what is a sacred moment? And in his book, Fasting, if you just check out the TV right here, I'm gonna see if I can make this happen. Oh. Here we go, here we go, here we go. Is it working? That's the worst square ever. It's a rectangle. Um, that'd be why it's the worst square ever. <laughs> this guy's teaching us? Okay. So in his book, Scott McKnight writes this out for fasting. And what we're going to do is we're going to see column B as the fast. For many of us, fasting is a one-dimensional act to which we have been told, if I fast, then I get life, health, money. That's... There we go. Right? And, and, and generally speaking, God moves on our behalf. So for many of us, we view the fast as B to C. Does that make sense? I fast and I get. The problem is is that we're neglecting this whole column A, what are known as sacred moments in life. Now this is where it gets difficult because the things that I'm about to write down to many of us are rejected moments of life, not sacred. Death, loss, grief, pain. Injustice, poverty, sin. And for many of us, we remove these things from our life and we operate in a transactional reality with God. You could probably say this for many of our spiritual disciplines, but what we're suggesting fasting is, is that there is a clarion call when this stuff takes place in our lives to fast. So now the fast is a response to a sacred moment rather than a desire to get something. Am I helping anybody out today? And when this changes, oh, we can talk about the church having potency in our world. We can talk about the church being effective in our world. But as long as we are a transactional people, then that is what our relationship with Jesus is. It is simply spiritual prostitution. 
But when I come in contact with loss and, and grief and pain and when I see the injustice of the world and when I see poverty and when I see sin personally and nationally, I start to fast because my place as a Christ follower is petitioning God. And it changes everything. I think this is gonna stay up. The fast works itself through our whole person, a unified person. If we were to start in the Old Testament Hebrew and work our way through the New Testament Greek, we would find a collection of terms defining for us various dimensions of who we are ourselves. Soul, nepesh in the Old Testament, flesh, bashar, spirit, ruha, heart, Leb, then you get to the New Testament and you have the Greek heart, cardia, soul, psyche, flesh, sarx, body, soma, mind, nuwa, spirit, pneuma, will, thelma. And in this area, we realize that fasting, when it's a transactional reality, is not impacting the totality of, we, of who we are. But when I experience these things in my life, they impact who I am, and my response is then to fast. My response is then to engage God with the denial of self. See, fasting requires unified participation of every part of our being, and you would know this if you've ever fasted before, because it's not just your stomach rumbling. Now I'm distracted. Have you ever noticed that when you fasted, for those of us who have fasted before, all of a sudden you, like, the desire, whoo, it rages in you. You would eat tree bark. <laughs> or what vegans eat. I'm <laughs> just... <laughs> But have you ever noticed, though, our bodies and our spirits seem to not work together very well? That's what Paul would say in Romans. He'd say, these two areas of my life are constantly waging war against each other. And, in fact, across our cultural history, can we just do some, some work before we get into the practical aspect? Is this helping anybody today? Four ideas have emerged concerning our bodies and how we view them. These four ideas are really important to our study of fasting because they help us see why we tend to devalue and avoid the sacred practice. Once again, Scott McKnight helps us out on this. His book is called Fasting. If you wanna do a deep dive, you can grab a hold of that book. Here's, here's what he defines as the areas that we kind of prop up from a cultural value perspective. We see our bodies as a monster to be conquered. We see it as a celebrity to be glorified. We see our bodies and ourselves as a cornucopia to be filled. Or we see them as a wallflower to be ignored. Even in those statements, what we're seeing is that who we are as self has to be focused on. How many of you would agree with me that in the world that we live in, culturally speaking right now, we have a lot of self-focus? We have two massive apps that are des like designed for us to focus on ourselves. Oh, sure, we think that we're focusing on everybody else and their, their pictures and their things and everything like that. But really, if you were to dig into it, the whole world of media outlets right now and Instagram and Facebook, it is self-oriented. So no wonder the idea of, what do you mean, deny myself? Oh. And that's the impetus of fasting. I want to submit to us today that fasting is such an important part of our spiritual development as we seek to save the sacred. 
So today, this is what I want to do in just a few minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> As I want to take a look at five truths concerning fasting and specifically the role that it plays in the sacred moments of our life. And just as a qualifier, these are more like five aspects of fasting in these different areas. So don't see them as linear or don't, don't, don't see them as, like a, as a scale, but I just want us to like wrap our minds around them. And they're not always happening at once at the same time, okay? So we're going to work through that. I'm not going to go crazy deep with these, with these applications today for the sake of time, um, but uh, there might be another moment where if you want to hear more about this, we'll dig in in some other, other venues. But here's the first thing that we need to understand about fasting is fasting is a weapon of spiritual warfare. Fasting is a weapon of spiritual warfare. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read it all, but we understand that Jesus was led into the desert Tempted by Satan, watch what it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Here's the qualifier, he was hungry. Just, and this is an important note for us, why? Because at the end of the day, it would be really easy for us to say, well, of course, Jesus fasted, he was God, and it would be easy for him. So we are needing to understand and know after 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus wanted some food. He was hungry. Watch what happened. Then the tempter approached him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And all the carbohydrate loving people in the house said, <laughs> of course, right? Could you imagine if you're fasting and you were led into the wilderness by, by the devil himself? And he's like, listen, you're the son of God. Like just stones, sourdough, just <laughs> sourdough. A little vinegar and oil and some salt and pepper on the side. You can dip it. Just do it right now, God. <laughs> he answered, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Here's the truth about fasting and spiritual warfare. We ignore our mouths so we can hear from his mouth. For sure, prayer is an important part of and Bible reading and, and worship, and we take notice of these, but Jesus battled the enemy with a fast. And it was in this moment in his hunger that he was clear in mind, clear in purpose, clear in heart. There was a strength of conviction that only comes when the one who is so focused on God because of the hunger and because of the place that I'm in, because of the fast, I'm, I'm dialed in. If you wanna hear a practical application, my team knows this about me, Erica knows this about me. I, for the reason, not of health, like we talked about in the beginning, or because I'm abstaining from a certain food, on Sundays, I fast in the mornings, meaning that I do not eat until we're done with church. So throughout this entire day this morning, while I'm preaching, I am preaching on an empty stomach. And here's why because it keeps me focused on God, in my hunger. Where does my energy level come from? Not from the perfect balance of protein and carbohydrates and fat. My energy this morning comes from the Lord. And when my stomach is gargling on the front row over here, just give me some bacon, give me some steak, give me some eggs and some cheese and some macaroni and give me all the fried chicken and give me everything that will weigh me down. I've gotta stop and say, no, 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 you, I only live on the bread that comes from the heaven right now. And that is, you guys see what I'm talking about? 
When we face spiritual warfare, fasting is what causes us to hunger after the things of God. And this is the place that we need to find ourselves in as we face the enemy. Here's the second thing about fasting we need to know is that fasting is a sound of corporate lament. If we go back to Isaiah 58, 6 through 8, he would say, isn't this the fast that I chose? To break the chains of wickedness? To untie the ropes of the yoke? To set the oppressed free? And to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? To bring the poor and homeless into your house? To clothe the naked when you see him? And not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Especially when it comes to corporate lament, the body, the church, should engage in fasting. This was the type of fast that was being called for as the prophet Isaiah would bring direction to the people of God. Because of grave injustice, national pain, bondage, mistreatment, and oppression, the people were called to fast. And I believe this, that fasting may be the single greatest opportunity that we have as Christ followers to actually engage in the injustices that we see in the world and bring change. But it's interesting, we don't seem to get too excited about that conversation. I wanna challenge us today as a church, especially those of us who are passionate about righting the wrongs of the world, to see the sacred practice of fasting is our biblical mandate as we recognize what is happening in the world around us today. We have to realize that from a biblical perspective that dealing with injustice is so much more than a social media post. Okay, now, now we gotta just push it a little bit further. Is it possible that God is not moved by what we write with our fingers, but rather what we do with our stomach? We look at some of the tragedies, tragedies that have taken place this week alone. I see a lot of posts about what happened in Atlanta. Can we talk real in church today? I see a lot of posts of things that are happening in the world. But when the church responds in a worldly way, I'm gonna just let you know that we're not doing anything for anybody. Sure, you can hold a picket sign. Sure, you can do a march. Sure, you can do all of these different things. But when was the last time the church saw grave injustice in the world and decided, today I am going on a fast. Tomorrow I'm going on a fast. When was the last time the church stood up and got into the halls of Congress and decided for 49 days I'm going to deny myself? And for some of us, we will hear this as a political conversation it's not this is a fasting conversation the prophet Isaiah Jesus and many more David Duncombe a dude you've never heard of 71 years old the story would tell us that towards the backside of his fast in order to walk the halls of Congress he had to have a walker in order to keep going because his fast riddled his body I just need to call us back to some ancient paths. Biblical call to fast and pray is so much more than religious jargon and spiritual gymnastics. The call to fast during times of great national and global injustice is to enter into the sacred space of the lament and doing so by rejecting the desire of our stomachs and giving attention to God. Here's the third thing. Fasting is a process of sacred grief. 2 Samuel chapter 1, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. 
highlights the moment that we would see two main characters within the Old Testament and in the life of David the king die, Jonathan and Saul. The beginning of this chapter, one of the people from Saul's camp would come and let David know that in fact, his best friend Jonathan and the king who had been trying to take his life because David was going to take the throne, both of them were dead, best friend and enemy. And as we get through this part, David, as you walk all the way through this, we get to verse 11 after David hears about this and he asks, how do you know that they're dead? He's trying to corroborate the story and making sure that everything is legit. And then after he realizes that what is being told is true, verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. All the men with him did the same. They mourned and they wept and fasted until the evening for those who had died by the sword, for Saul, his, uh, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. Think about that. It was an automatic response to deep grief. And here's the problem. Can I just challenge us today as a people of faith not to be shallow? And the problem is, is that for many of us, death, grief, pain is a very difficult thing for us to deal with. And the Bible actually gives us a direction on how to deal with it. Is it possible that we experience much of the anxiety that comes from this portion of our life because we reject and neglect the very thing that would bring freedom and hope in it? Because we, we dig into it. So then we stay in places like, I need, I need, I, need oh, I can't, I can't deal with that. What do you mean you can't deal with it? You've been called to deal with it by actually engaging it, not rejecting it. Understanding that there's actually beauty in this place as much as it may be difficult to understand. That this is the closest place. There, there's, a, there's a study that has been shown when workers who deal with like long-term care facilities, typically for older people on their, uh, that are on their, dying, on their deathbed. And when asked, why do they keep on doing this? Like, what is it in your mind? What is it that allows you to just sit there at the bedside and as I was reading this one article, one of the healthcare workers said this, you will not find a more sacred place than the place where one takes their last breath. And they keep on coming back. But many of us, in the name of self-care, I just, nope, can't deal with it. I need to stay happy. I need to stay joy-filled. That's not my, then we over-spiritualize it as Christians. That's not, my, that's not my portion. Your portion's to step right into it. Your portion's to face it, not reject it. And it's in that beautiful place that we actually deal with grief. Listen to one, this quote by one author. At the very core of fasting is empathy with the divine or participation in God's perception of this sacred moment. When someone dies, God is grieved. When someone sins, particularly egregious, God is grieved. When a nation is threatened, God is grieved. And we could provide more examples. The point is this, fasting identifies with God's perspective and grief in a sacred moment. Fasting enables us to identify with how God views a given event. Fasting empowers us to empathize with God. Fasting is about pathos, taking on the emotions of God in a given sacred event. And we thought it was just not eating tacos. 
Am I helping anybody today? Remember, this whole series, Saving Sacred, is about making sure that we're deeper than an inch. So this, for some of us, may be, may be jarring. For some of us in here today, you walked in because somebody just like, invite, hey, come to church, it'll be fun. And all of a sudden, you're met with this. <laughs> but here's what I'm starting to realize about this cultural moment that we're in is that for many of us, we need greater depth. We are valuing depth. I need something that's more sustaining because the things that I was getting by on, I've come to realize are shallow at best, so I need something greater to anchor me as I walk through this life, as I walk through this journey. And this may be, I believe, one of the most important messages in this series because this is what we're dealing with right now. Death, pain, injustice, poverty, sin. And if the church is gonna engage in this moment, it's not gonna be by my empathy, it's gonna be understanding how God sees things and then engaging with him. Number four, this one y'all love. Fasting is a sign of personal repentance. (laughs) Joel chapter two, 12 through 17. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Can we read some Bible today? Is that all right? Turn to me with all your heart. Here it is. With fasting, weeping, and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious, here it is, he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so you can offer a grain offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. Blow the ram's horn in Zion. Announce a sacred fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the aged. Gather the infants, even babies nursing at the breast. Let the groom leave his bedroom and the bride her honeymoon chamber. Let the priests, let the Lord's ministers weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, have pity on your people, Lord, and do not make your inheritance a disgrace, an object of scorn among the nations. Why should it be among the people? Where is their God? This is the response of personal repentance. Like, that's crazy. The Bible's telling us that when repentance is happening, personal, like, I, I need you to get everybody. This is the type of worship service that they would have. Could you imagine getting that call as a brand new honeymoon couple? <laughs> hey, guys, um, we're gonna need you to come back. Joe just repented. <laughs> Come back from Tahiti. (laughs) Now, obviously, this is Old Testament, and it fleshes itself out a little bit differently, but the point is this. Fasting is a sign of personal repentance. In other words, fasting is a form of humility as it causes us to turn to the Lord in light of our rejection of food and sustenance. Now, if I'm honest, fasting has become a dirty word in our world. Because in our 21st century churches, we want to keep everything happy. But one of the most powerful aspects of our faith is when we come to this place, we do it at the end of every service. Repentance is involved in the salvation process. Simply saying, God, I'm acknowledging where I'm broken. Come on, somebody. And we all are. There's not a perfect, there's not a perfect person in this room. This is a room full of process. And repentance is the place, I, I do it on the daily. God, in, in my prayers, just a simple prayer, God, I repent of the things that have been in my mind and in my heart and my eyes 
that I haven't stewarded well, where there has been wrong in me, where there's been attitude in me, where I've sinned in my anger, all these different places. God, I stand before you right now, purify my heart, renew, as, as the psalmist would say, renew a right spirit in me. It's repentance. And here's the problem. When we neglect the weightier truths of scripture, especially repentance, then we miss out on the weightier aspects of freedom and grace. And here's the last one. As fasting is a response to salvation. Come on, somebody. In Acts chapter nine, verses one through nine, we read the story of Saul. It says he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And on his journey to go confront Christians and kill them, he would be met by the presence of Jesus. And Jesus would say, why are you doing this? And in that moment, Paul would experience one of the greatest degrees of transformation that he would ever experience. And the Bible would tell us that he would be blind, and here it is in the last, last verse, he was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. And it wasn't because Jesus beat him up. It was a sacred moment and a sacred response. He would know this because of his background as a Jewish man, as a Hebrew, as a Pharisee. He understood all of the Old Testament significance in this. And in the sacred moment of change and salvation, Paul would fast. Paul's fasting was, in fact, a celebration of the sacred. He wasn't mourning transformation. He was leaning into it. Now remember, in any one of these messages, we're not talking transactions. I don't fast in order to receive salvation. I experience salvation in Christ, and so I fast to celebrate it. You see the difference? And that's what Paul was doing. Today, you walked in potentially to what I feel is such an important message in this Saving Sacred series. It's the sacred path of body turning. It's one thing to say, I'm experiencing God at a spiritual compartment in my life. It's another thing to say that I'm experiencing, experiencing God in every ounce of who I am.